Well, we're continuing the Gospel of Matthew, as the slide says. And several years ago, in a land far, far away, I was at a local coffee shop. And it was just after I had finished meeting with a group of people in this shop. Uh, this is when I was in Oregon. It was a small town. And uh, the folks were just leaving when this guy walked in, who I really didn't know very well, but I had spoken to a couple times because he was a... Uh, a leader in one of the local churches in town. But to be honest with you, my stomach kind of clenched up when I saw this fellow because he wasn't one of my favorite people. He was one of these guys that were very argumentative, always had to be right in every discussion you had with them. And I don't enjoy being around people like that. And he, like many Christians, kind of had his pet theological issues that he would constantly carry on about and constantly berate people about. But I also felt kind of sorry for him because, in a way, he had just totally destroyed his life uh, just in the last few months. He had, he had broken up his marriage, left his wife. Uh, he, the church that he was involved in was small, and he was very disruptive within the church, and the church was breaking up. It was dissolving, and he just kind of seemed to be a, a train wreck of a life at this particular moment. And so when he walked in and, and he recognized me, he says, hey, Jeff, I'll, I'll be by and talk with you in just a moment. My first response was to want to say, I, I got to go. I don't have time. Sorry. Maybe we can arrange a different time. But I decided to stay because I thought, well, you know, maybe this guy needs someone to talk to. And so he got his coffee and he sat down across me. And the first thing he asked, the first thing he said was, so you still refusing to take a scriptural view on the rapture? That was how he started the conversation. And I don't know about you, but uh, what you know or don't know or what's been important to you or what you've talked about in your Christian walk, but the rapture is kind of one of these things that folks talk about a lot where Christians will be caught up to be with Christ around this time that's called the tribulation. And this is something that comes out of the, the book of Revelation, but there's also some, some allusions to it in other parts of the, of the scripture as well. And there's this debate that goes on. And it's kind of a, a debate that causes a lot of division, which is silly because it's the debate as to whether or not Christians will be raptured before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation. And it's called the pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib rapture debate. And, and people will get very passionate about it. And this guy was very passionate. Now, in my opinion, this is not a salvation issue. This is just kind of, this is trying to figure out when something will happen. It's not a salvation issue. It's not something I can control. So I don't give it a whole lot of thought. But because I'm somewhat pessimistic in my view of life, I think that it's better to be prepared to suffer and then have not, not have to suffer. So like I'm, I'm kind of mentally, emotionally prepared to be in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation. But if the pre-tribulation rapture comes, I'm not going to be complaining. I'm not going to be saying, no, I wanted to suffer. But I think that if you prepare yourself for like, whoa, we're not going to have to suffer, and then you do, then this is the type of thing that people get their spiritual legs knocked out from underneath them, and they really suffer. So anyway, this guy used to always like to talk about this, and he was very upset with me because I wouldn't come down hard on his, his side of pre-tribulation rapture. And for him, it was a big deal because he would take things like this, these things that really don't matter that much, and turn them into salvation issues. He would say things like, I don't feel like you're listening to the Holy Spirit and rightly dividing the Scripture. Or he'd say other things like, you know, I don't feel that you, you've been illumined by the, the Spirit of God, and I kind of question whether or not you truly are following the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the world. You know, he'd throw out these big statements regarding 
my personal salvation over something like pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, rapture. And as he began to push through all his opinions, I sat there kind of shocked because here's a guy who had left his wife. He had deeply damaged one of the local churches with his arrogance and sin. And he was telling me about my salvation was in jeopardy because of this particular issue of the rapture. And I remember thinking how strange it was to be lectured by a person on my theological shortcomings by this guy of all people. I mean, if we'd been talking about something substantial, meaningful, that would have been fine. But I'm sitting across from this train wreck being told how messed up my theology was. And, I, and little did I know, because this was early in my ministry, this is the sort of thing that would happen time and time again over the years. But I find, it, I find one of the things difficult to, to wrap my head around is to be instructed by someone on debatable theological points while they are completely blind to their own spiritual condition. And that blindness and that pride in these conversations, that's what, I think that becomes the part that's the hardest just to stomach. It's like being told by someone who can't carry a tune that you don't sing very well. Or being told someone you need to, to, to watch what you eat who has to turn sideways to go through a door. You know, it just it, it feels that deep, that deep, deep sense of hypocrisy. And to be honest with you, I find that a little bit annoying. And you know what? I think even Jesus found this annoying. Because as we pick up in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus in one of these discussions with, again, one of the, the, the kind of the villain of the scriptures, which is a group of guys called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, as you remember, as we've talked about before, they were actually a grassroots kind of of the people form of Judaism. And in many ways, we have a lot in common with the Pharisees. They struggled with a lot of what Jesus had to say because Jesus was saying things which overturned the traditions and the teachings that they had held on to for their entire lives. And so the scripture tells us that there's this group of Pharisees that come, and for the first time we hear they're coming from Jerusalem. So these guys are a big deal here. Yeah. yeah the empire. And in Matthew chapter five, uh, 15, starting at verse 1, it says this. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And then here's the big, big issue they have. They don't wash their hands before they eat. It sounds like something your mom would say to you. You know, you need to wash your hands before you eat. But the Pharisees come to Jesus. They come from Jerusalem. And they come with this big concern. His disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, aside from good hygiene... What was the problem with the Pharisees here? Well, they believed that everything had to do with purity and, and being clean in the eyes of God. And they followed a very strict regimen of rituals to keep clean in the eyes of God. And if you weren't going through this strict regimen of keeping clean in the eyes of God, then you were outside of the will of God. And so they come and they tell Jesus, your disciples break the tradition of the elders. You're expecting some big thing to come here after this, right? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus, just like he often does in, in these types of situations, ignores the question completely and gets to the heart of the matter. He says this, Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of tradition? 
For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, in the, in the time of Jesus and in the culture of Jesus, just like many cultures to this very day, kids were expected to take care of their parents in their old age. Kids were kind of the retirement plan for parents. Did someone need to get the phone? or? Okay. Anyways. <laughs> I'll stop now. So they were, they were expected to take care of their parents in their old age, but a way you could get around from having to actually spend money to take care of your parents in their old age was to say that you were donating all your money to the temple. You were devoting it to the temple. It was called the Corban, and then they had a word for it, the Corban. You could, you could say you were donating the money to the temple, and then because of some loose translation laws, that money, because it was devoted to the temple, can only be used for the temple. It can't be used to take care of your parents, except for one exception. It can be used to take care of yourself until you die. So you could say, I'm donating, I'm giving all my wealth to the temple. Therefore, mom and dad, I can't help you because I've devoted it to God. But you're allowed to use the money to take care of yourself until you die. And this is what Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about. He's saying, you guys, you guys... Well, this is what he says. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. So that right there, he's going against the pharisaical idea of the dietary laws. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. And typical of Matthew's writing style, he puts in the center of the story the main point. What goes into a man's mouth isn't what makes him unclean, or what goes into a woman's mouth doesn't make her unclean. It's what comes out. Because it's the overflow of the heart. What comes out of the mouth is what makes him clean or unclean. One's purity or righteousness or holiness doesn't come from keeping rituals. It comes from how a person lives. And claiming purity by following a particular rule or ritual, but then living unrighteously is what Jesus calls hypocrisy. And this is a lesson for the people in the time of Christ, but it's also a lesson for us today. Like this guy I was telling you about earlier, there are Christians who think they live rightly because they listen to a particular preacher or they hold to a particular theological teaching. And to be sure, there are some teachings, theological teachings, that we should adhere to and we must adhere to if we're going to call ourselves Christians. But when it comes to the most basic biblical commands like love one another and do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with your God, they fall into the pit of hypocrisy. And I mentioned earlier that this kind of thing annoyed Jesus. Jesus was annoyed with the Pharisees. And we see this in his response to Scripture because after he blasts the Pharisees and apparently they left, the disciples come to Jesus and say this, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So the disciples are, are worried that Jesus is offending powers that be. And Jesus 
Jesus doesn't really care about the offense given to the Pharisees because they're living in a hypocritical way which is damaging the lives of people around them. He says, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, they'll both fall into a pit. That's where that phrase where the blind leads the blind comes from. Jesus didn't care that he had offended the Pharisees because they were living in a hypocritical matter that w- manner that was influencing the people around them to also live in a hypocritical manner. And there's another place in the scripture he says, you as Pharisees, you'll cross the ocean to make one convert and then you turn them into twice the devil that you guys are. You make them a slave to your rules, but there's no change of heart. And so we see that Jesus is kind of irritated by this. And then it kind, of, it kind of goes over towards his disciples because then Peter, Peter is kind of, you know, he, he's one of these guys that kind of says something and then thinks about it later. But the disciples have gotten into this habit. If you look at the book of Matthew, this is the third time this happens. They ask Jesus, explain the parable to us. But this time Jesus is kind of tired of this. And he says, are you still so dull? In other words, Do I still need to explain everything to you guys? Isn't it rather obvious what's going on here? You can just kind of feel the tension in the the conversation here. Jesus has had this tense conversation with the Pharisees, and then Peter's like, explain this to us. And Jesus is like, come on. This is pretty obvious. He goes, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach, then out of the body? But the things that come from the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands doesn't make him unclean. And the verse 21 is kind of an interesting commentary. It says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. The region of Tyre and Sidon was outside, was non-Jewish territory. So he just leaves. He leaves Jewish territory altogether. He's like, he's done with the Pharisees, doesn't want to be badgered by this. And he goes into a, an area, which is just across the Sea of Galilee, which is a Gentile area. And we'll see next week what he runs into there. But, you know, Jesus has been trying to get alone ever since he's heard that John the Baptist was executed. He's been followed around by folks. He has these irritating conversations with the Pharisees who are complete hypocrites. His disciples can't seem to understand the simplest of messages, so he leaves. He goes to to Gentile country for a while. He just needs to get away from it. And at this point, and I find it funny, too, in the Scripture that, yeah, I think the Scripture actually has a lot of humor in it kind of hidden in there. But he doesn't bring, even bring up the whole hand-washing thing till verse 20. So he never addresses it with the Pharisees, but it's rolling around the back of his head, you know? And he gets a chance with the disciples. He's like, these people, it's not, this isn't what matters. You know, so he's still bugged by, by this conversation he had with the Pharisees. And I'd love to come up with some easy point, and, it, and there is an easy point in this. Brothers and sisters, examine yourselves. Make sure you're focusing on the majors of your faith. Instead of focusing on the minors, make sure you're living righteously, not just trying to do righteously. But the truth is, we all fall into this trap that the Pharisees are in at some point in our walk. We all do. I have. Trust me, some of you have. And when we fall into this trap, very often we're completely blind as to even being in the trap. We don't even even realize we're there sometimes. 
because the reasons we're there are very important to us, even if they're not important to God. To the Pharisees, it was very important to them that the disciples didn't wash their hands before eating. It wasn't that important to God. It wasn't that important to Jesus, who the scripture we just read in Colossians is the very divinity of God among us. It wasn't important to him. If you, know, if you want to know what God finds important, read the Gospels. Jesus responds to things that are important and things that are not important to God because he is the very word of God made flesh. But this was important to the Pharisees, and they couldn't, get their, they couldn't realize how blind they were. And this happens for us. It happens to this guy I've told you about in the coffee shop. This guy in the coffee shop. He was remarkably blind to the situation he was in. And he was known for being this way throughout the community. At least he was consistent in this. But sometimes we get stuck into these false places that, that, we, that, that consume our lives. And a lot of the reasons why we get stuck on these little things I've found over the years is because we don't want to face the big things in our life. We don't want to face the big areas that really our life needs to be brought before the throne of God and, and looked through. Search my heart, O Lord, as King David prayed. Search my heart, O Lord. See if there's anything in there that you find displeasing. That's a dangerous and scary prayer. And a lot of us know that there's a place in our life that is way out of sync with God. And the more out of sync with God and the longer we stay in that place of not being really in sync with God, and yet we put on the show of righteousness, the deeper and the blinder we become to the sin that we are involved in because we justify it to ourselves. We justify that I'm in a normal place here, and you're not, but we justify it. And this becomes this idea of, of trying, to, trying to be something that we're not thinking that we're fooling God when we're not. There's a little video I'm going to show. It's called Honest Preacher, and it's about a guy that's kind of come to the end of his rope. And uh, let's take a look at this. Be jerks! You're supposed to... I may digress for a moment from my prepared message. I mean it when I say to you, you guys, sometimes you're bad. Don't be jerks. You're supposed to be good. I'm in my office every day and somebody comes in and they're like, hey, whoops. I'm like, don't. Dan, what is your deal? If anybody doesn't know, Dan is the worst. I took a vow to not say who was the worst, but it's Dan. You guys are making me look bad in front of God. What's that? Oh, look, it's Jesus. And he said, stop it. The word of the Lord. guys had a rough day. 
But that whole thing, I thought was kind of funny. The word of the Lord, Jesus said, stop it! <laughs> I, can, I can resonate with that sometimes. Because God really has no interest in the things that we do to justify ourselves, whether they're the good things or they're not. He's more interested in who you really are, really are in that kind of secret center of yourself where even you are a mystery to you. That's who God wants to know. He wants to get that mystery figured out. Who are you really? Who are you really in your core of core, in your heart of hearts? In that private place that is even more private than you even are aware of, who are you? Because again, Jesus says that the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And those are what make a man unclean. Whoops, I need to go back. We're having technical difficulties today. Those are what make a man unclean. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Those are what make a man unclean. In other words, what is in that heart of hearts? And this frustration with the Pharisees will eventually reach a kind of climactic point in chapter 23. Chapter 23 is almost an entire rant of Jesus against the Pharisees. And he keeps using this phrase over and over to you, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees. Woe to you. In other words, it is not going to go well for you. Sorrow is upon you. Woe to you. You clean the outside of a cup and a dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. And then he continues on. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So Jesus doesn't pull any punches when it comes to his, his opinion about living religiously on the outside, but living unclean on the inside. And so then the question becomes, well, then how can we check ourselves? How can we check ourselves when we're so often blind to these things? And it's a question we all need to have. I need to know, too. How can we check ourselves? And one way that I was praying and, and pondering on this, because, you know, you have the obvious kind of lesson from this, which is, you know, don't just be doing things on the outside, but also on the inside, be in your relationship with God. But how do you check that? And I think one of the ways Jesus tells us to check this is in how we express love. How we express love. He says in John, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. He repeats himself over and over and over again. And remember here, this is the new part about this command isn't the command to love. That's even in the Old Testament. But the command to love from the Old Testament is love your neighbor as yourself. But the new part of this command is love one another as I have loved you. There's no loophole in as I have loved you and as Jesus has loved us. So ask yourself this. Are the words to your spouse loving? I think the person we're most often the harshest with is the ones we're closest to. And like our spouse is one of them. We tend to be more harsh with our spouse than with anyone else. So there's a good place to ask yourself. How are my words towards my spouse? Are they loving? Are they caring? Are they selfish? 
What about to my, to my kids? Kind of the next person we tend to, to show our true self to is toward our children. How are my words toward my kids? Are they loving? Are they instructive? Are they caring? Are they just angry? How do you treat, then the next one comes kind of, how do you treat strangers? How do you treat people that there is no direct consequence to? How do you treat them? Is it loving? Is it caring? Is it polite? Lately, one of the things that we have to deal with as a people is social media. How does social media reflect our heart? You know, there's these, these bracelets, bracelets people used to wear that said WWJD. What would Jesus do? I think the new one needs to be WWJP. What would Jesus post? And if one of you wants to take that and make a million-dollar idea out of it, you know, just cut in the church so we can, we can plan to move and, and we'll have it in there. But what would Jesus post? WWJP. Because people have in mind that their social media is their private place, when the truth is your social media is the most public place out there. People know what you're thinking. They know your opinion about everything because people will post it. And sometimes people are under the illusion that, that online media is, is private. It's not. It, online media is equivalent to thinking that the car is a private space. Have you ever noticed that some people, when they drive, they apparently think they're in a private space in their car? And they'll do something, like right next to you, not that far away. They'll start picking their nose in their car. They're just going up there, first knuckle, second knuckle, they're way in there. And they think they're in a private space because they're in their car. And you're looking there, you're going, clear window, clear window. Fully engaged, going mining, deep mining for gold up there. And it's not a private space. This is what, public, this is what social media is. Social media is not a private space. It's picking your nose in public. Or it's presenting yourself as Jesus would want you to be presented in public. Yeah, there's just some things that we don't think about. So we need to prioritize. If we're unable to meet those basics of faith, like loving one another and, and living in such a way that glorifies Christ, then we don't need to waste time talking about pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, rapture. We don't need to waste time talking about predestination or free will. You don't need to talk about the nuances of dispensationalism or sacerdotalism or a bunch of other isms that maybe a lot of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Focus on who Jesus is and what he wants you to be in your life. Doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with God, loving as God loved us. You know, basically Christianity 101. Because being a clever Pharisee is no replacement for being a simple believer in Christ. And it's to the simple believer in Christ that God will one day say, well done, good and faithful servant. So in closing, kids, wash your hands before you eat. You know, it's just good basic hygiene. It's a good habit to have, but never make any mistake of thinking that your version of what is good is the same as Jesus' notion for what is good. The only way you'll know what God believes is good is to know him and to be in relationship with his spirit. Because at the end of the day, God's opinion is the only opinion that matters. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the challenge of it. We thank you for seeing that... Uh, even though you are the very word of God made flesh dwelling among us, it doesn't mean that there weren't times that you didn't find our humanity annoying.
And I know you loved the Pharisees, and many of the Pharisees came to know you. I know you loved your disciples. But we are reminded here, too, that you know, our, our actions can be frustrating to you and to others. And Lord, forgive us, forgive me, for the times that my actions are frustrating toward you and toward others. And Lord, we pray that you would guide us, especially during this time where there's so many different uh, opinions flying around about so many things regarding faith and religion and life in general, that we could keep focused on you, on who you are, on, on the basics of our faith, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, to love one another as Christ loved us. And Father, for those of us who are here, who are, have your spirit, but we've kind of set the spirit aside in, in favor of other opinions or our own opinions, Lord, help us to be aware of that and to repent and put you back into that place in our hearts. And we pray that for every one of us here. And we pray that for us as a church. It's easy for an entire church to get off track. It's easy for an entire nation to get off track thinking that they are following you, but really just following after vanity and hypocrisy. And so, Lord, we pray that, you would, that we could set our hearts before you, pray that dangerous prayer that King David prayed, that you would search out our hearts, and that anything that is un displeasing to you will be brought to our attention so we can repent of it and walk away. As hard as that may seem, give us the courage to be your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.